So I wanted to start tonight <clears throat> by reading you um, something which I think I probably heard for the first time when I sat my very first retreat some 20-odd years ago. And it's I've heard it a number of times since then. It will probably be familiar to a few of you. And um, it's really stayed with me as a description um, of what it's like to do the practice. <clears throat> this is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. One. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Two. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Three. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Four. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Five, I walk down a different street. (laughs) So I was thinking about this talk tonight, and often when we have these sort of solstice, holiday, potlucks, whatever I talk about has something to do with this season of the year. And actually, in thinking about the season of the year, this particular quote seemed particularly apt, because here we are, walking down the same street. And it's December, and no matter how you deal with what's going on around us in December, it's still December, and the hole is still there in the street. And so... It's, you know, it's familiar, isn't it? There's um, sometimes the difficult dynamics of everything that goes on in our culture, all of the shopping craze that gets going at this time of year. For some people, there's issues around family, whether you have one or don't have one or however it is that you are with them. Some people are deeply lonely at this time of year. Some people are really angry, and some people have a lot of grief, and there's probably a few things I haven't thought to include. And so each of us um, has our own mix of the things that go on around this season of the year. And some of you have probably already figured out a way to do this, how to walk down a different street, or at the very least to walk around the hole or at least if you fall in to know how to get out. And some of us, I think, probably still 
um, struggle with whatever it is that's going on. And no matter how you um, work with it, it's really difficult to avoid it completely. Almost impossible. And so how is it that we can stay sane? And how is it that we not get caught and lost in our own pain or aversion or suffering? Or um, alternatively, how is it that we stay sane without isolating ourselves from everything and everyone um, around us? So last week, I said that I was going to start a series of talks and on the evenings when I'm here to teach and that I was going to talk based on this list of lists called the 37 Wings of Awakening. And um, this is a series that of things that the Buddha talked about repeatedly, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four wise efforts, the four powers, the five spiritual faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the Eightfold Path. I even have the list of the lists memorized. <laughs> I'm very proud of myself, actually. And, um, and I, I said then, and want to repeat it again, I, I love the, the name of it, the Wings of Awakening, because it has the sense of, of that which can, can really lift us up and help us move toward a more awake place in our own being. And so the first of these lists is the list of the four foundations of mindfulness. So many of you, many of you know this list without knowing that you know it, probably, because it's really that which we build our mindfulness upon. So these, these, this list is a list of the foundations of mindfulness. So you can think of it as um, those things that you can actually build your practice of mindfulness with. It's also sometimes called, by some scholars, the four frames of reference. So the four ways that you can frame your experience and in that way bring mindfulness to it. And so these are areas that if you are attentive to them, then you're mindful. If you're aware of any one of these things, you're here and you're present. And what's interesting and why some of you know them even if you don't think that you know them is that pretty much this is the list that we base the instructions for meditation upon. So often at a retreat or at a beginner's class we'll work our way through this list of the foundations of mindfulness. So you've heard it in those situations, those of you who've been in either classes or retreats. So the four are the foundation of the body, which includes the breath. The foundation, the second is the foundation of the feeling tone of things. And I say feeling tone, sometimes it just said feelings, but it's not the feeling in the sense of uh, the way we use the word, but it's the, the tone of it. So whether an experience is pleasant or whether it is unpleasant or whether it is neutral. It's actually very important. It seems really simple, but it's one of the most important steps. 
And then the third is the foundation of the states of the mind and the heart. So the different things that arise in the mind, mind slash heart. The word citta in Pali and Sanskrit actually means mind and heart. It includes both. And then the fourth is the foundation of the dhammas. And so that's a foundation of some of the things that you begin to see and to understand when you do this practice. So as I thought about this, since I'd started the lists and here we are having this particular evening in our community, I began to kind of play around with the idea, well, how... How could you work with these? How could you really use this list in these coming weeks, no matter how you're living your life in these coming weeks? How could you use it to really support your ability to stay centered and to stay sane? How can this list actually be four of the wings of awakening that can really help you? So... One of the things that I think is really important to say is that mindfulness itself, the ability to be mindful, leads to what's another piece that's called clear comprehension. And I want to mention it here because it's the clear comprehension that helps you to understand what needs to happen in any given moment. And that's important. And if you think about being, you know, in the middle of tricky family dynamics or on a complicated journey or whatever it is that might be happening for you in the next month, you can almost immediately begin to see, oh, it's helpful to be able to sort out what is the wise and skillful action in this particular moment. So... The first of the foundations is to be in the body. To be in the body, the foundation of the body and the breath. You know, some of you may have noticed it even tonight. We had this very bubbly time, you know, dinner and conversation and children ringing the bell and doing all the different things that kids do and everybody, you know, quite a lot of energy in the room. And then, you know, the bell rang and it was time to shift and we all shifted. Some of you came in at that point. But you probably got the feel of the shift of the energy. So you might have noticed that it was a little more difficult to settle than it often is. And it was a little harder to be present in the breath and in the body than it sometimes is because we were so busy and talking and and I'll bet I'll bet that not too many of us and I say us advisedly I'm including me in this remembered during all of that bubble and ferment and all of that to be in our bodies did you remember to be in your body? nobody's raising their hand Probably a few of you did, but not everybody. And so then, doing this practice where we're really asked to be in our body is difficult. 
And often at retreats, when we go through that time at the end of the retreat that's sort of a re-entry, let's start talking again time, one of the things that many people say is, oh my goodness, I opened my mouth and I left my body. You know, just like that. Amazing. Amazing. So it's very, very easy to do. It's very easy to leave our body. And we live so much up in here, you know. We live in our thoughts and our stories and our plans and our worries. And we become quite ungrounded, really ungrounded. And of course, if one of the things that you're doing is spending time with family, there's no better place for stories, right? You've all got lots of history and lots of stories, some of it good and some of it difficult. And often those kind of gatherings of the clan that frequently happen, maybe for you it's already happened, maybe it happened at Thanksgiving, so maybe you're looking back at some of this, can be quite difficult and very, very hard to stay present. So, you know, I I had visions of all of us taking our pens and writing breathe on the palms of our hands, you know. know, Maybe on both hands, actually. (laughs) Probably be a good idea. And then, you know, every now and then you could kind of go, oh, yeah, breathe. Or, Or maybe one could say breathe and the other one could say be in your body. You know, so that that every now and then you just stop and you go, oh, right, breath, body, my feet are on the floor, my butt is sitting here on a chair, you know, I'm here. I had one person once who was a bit of a dancer and had a very, very difficult family situation. And what she did was she went off into the bathroom and then she did a few plies and bends and things like that, that just kind of put her back in her own body and her own world. And then she'd flush the toilet and she'd go back out and, you know, and move on. But she'd be a little more present and a little more grounded and a little more able to be there in a way that was wise and skillful. So I recommend it. You know, maybe dancing isn't your thing, but a yoga stretch or sometimes just going to the bathroom and sitting there, you know, and kind of taking a deep breath or two. Is, and to, that really brings you back in. There's a lovely line from Kabir. He says, um, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are and, and stand firm in your body. You know. So we need to stand firm in our bodies during this time. Now, the second of the foundations, it's a fabulous foundation. It's so useful, which is this one of noticing the pleasantness and the unpleasantness and the occasional neutrality of things. It's useful on the cushion because this is the place where the mind either goes off thinking about more because it's so pleasant and yummy, you want more, or it's filled with aversion and it's really unpleasant and the mind goes, oh, I'm out of here. What else could I do besides this? So it's a very interesting place where we often leave the present moment because things are pleasant or unpleasant. And sometimes we leave when they're neutral because we get bored. And so we don't have quite that hook to 
stay here in the present moment. So just beginning in, in meditation, noticing that is, again, a way to really root yourself in the experience of this present moment. But it's also, it's so useful because in life, so often, you know, you're having, we were talking about this and maybe it was in the committed students group or Tuesday, I forget when, earlier this week. And, you know, you're having a really happy moment. You've just dipped your strawberry into the chocolate fountain. And, you know, this chocolate is dripping off. And you put it in your mouth. And we get so hooked by the pleasantness that we're busy thinking about where did she get the chocolate fountain and how could I have one? (laughs) And you forget to taste the chocolate on the strawberry, right? You leave the moment. You're having fabulous sex with the person that you do that with if you do that. And, you know... And all of a sudden, you're off thinking about, gee, we should do this more often. (laughs) And you forget to just really enjoy it. Or you're sitting on the beach looking at the ocean, and it's beautiful. And then you're planning, gee, you know, I I don't get down here. I live here in Santa Cruz. How come I never get to the beach? How could I get to the beach more often? And then you're not in the present. Isn't that interesting? We don't let ourselves take in the things that are really delicious. And, of course, when they're really difficult, the mind kicks in and gets really agitated and really upset, wants out, wants it different. How could this be? And pretty soon it's just incredibly uncomfortable and painful. And it's just unpleasant. I saw this for myself. I was on an airplane a couple of weeks ago. We were on the tarmac. And somebody got in, Just actually somebody had just got in at the last moment. The first thing that happened was the attendant said, I have to give all the announcements all over again before we can pull away from the gate because these two people didn't hear the announcements that nobody listens to. <laughs> so we went through all the announcements and then they pulled up and then they stopped and they said, well, gee, we are 25th in line for takeoff and it's being very slow and it's going to be a while. So we crept along, we crept along, we crept around. Then they came on and they said, well, gee, we're probably going to have to taxi all the way over to the other side of the airport because they've changed the flight pattern. But because we've been out here so long and we're still only 12th in line, we may have to go back and refuel because (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'd already been flying most of the day. I was on my way to the to Maine. And at some point the thought went through, I thought, this is really unpleasant. (laughs) But you know, it was so helpful because I went, oh, right. It's unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. It's really unpleasant, but you know, everything's impermanent. And then because I'd already the thought about unpleasantness, then of course another reasonably skillful thought came along, which was maybe you could just give your attention to the breath and let it be unpleasant and wait. And so that's what I did. And it actually turned out to be not tons more pleasant, but definitely more pleasant than what it had been. And after a while, we didn't have to refuel, and we did take off, and I got there. But, you know, it was much better. I recommend it. 
And so sometimes in these events that happen in these coming weeks, you might notice it's unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. And just let it be unpleasant without needing to change it or to fix it, because you probably can't. And know that that's the nature of a good bit of our experiences, that it is, in fact, unpleasant, and it is possible to be present with it and to be mindful with it in its unpleasantness. You know. So then, in the third of the foundations, the states of the mind and the heart. So when the aversion comes in, or the grief, or the fear, or the major anxiety attack, or the anger... And the places, you know, it's so interesting, I think, at this time of year, because this is the place, you know, if you go back to the opening reading, we think we're ready to find another road. We think we're going to do that this time, right? This time, I'm not on the road with the hole. That's the chapter I think she left out, actually. (laughs) I'm not on the road with the hole. And then you discover, whoops, there's the hole, you know. And sometimes you only discover it when you're down in it, kind of looking up, and you realize that you've already fallen in. And, and so then anger comes up, or grief comes up, or the loneliness comes up, or whatever it is that, that is yours. And it's a state of the mind and the heart. And so again, it's something that you can give your attention to. There's no need to pretend that it's anything other than what it is, you know, and to name it. And sometimes, sometimes in some family situations, there's a strong response that's needed out of that space, some way of taking care of yourself or some way of telling Aunt Bessie, no, she can't have her, her way this time, or whatever it is that you need to do. And sometimes it's more skillful to know, oh, I'm angry. Maybe I should go take a walk. And so you and your anger go out and you take a walk until you're able to figure out what you need to do in order to be skillful. If you don't see those states, if you pretend that they're not there, what happens? They come out sideways very often. And often that's the place, that's one of the easiest places for unskillful things to happen. So it's really helpful to kind of take your temperature every now and then. You know, how am I doing? What's my mind state? What's going on right now? Probably another place where the bathroom's useful. You can go in and close the door and go, okay, how am I feeling? You know, because you may not know always. And it takes a moment to breathe and go, oh, yeah, I really am. And you fill in the blank. <clears throat> what we know doesn't work is to ignore it. That doesn't work. That's, you know, that's not being mindful. So then, out the fourth of the foundations uh, is the place where you begin to see things. And this isn't perhaps the, a foundation that's mm, that is the, it's it's probably not the most useful of the four for this kind of how do we work with this in a, during a difficult period, and yet. I think there's some things there. So one of the things that 
is you notice and that you learn are the things that block your mindfulness. And we talk about these in the retreat world all the time, the five hindrances of desire and aversion and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. But you know, you can begin to notice in your everyday life or during this particular season of the year, what keeps you from being present? You know, And in fact, if you're really tired and sleepy, you're not so present, are you? You know, or when the mind is filled with desire for something else, it makes it very, very hard to be here in the moment. And then there's also things that you notice that support your being awake. You know, that place of of um, interest and energy and calm and concentration and some of the factors of awakening that really, really support your mindfulness. And sometimes in the course of these kinds of bumpier times, we begin to understand more about the causes of suffering and the nature of suffering and see more deeply into it. Or or the other thing that I think comes up a lot, certainly for me and family gatherings, is, you know, I remember the time when my mother arrived and I looked at her and I went, oh, oh, she's getting old. You know, it's like she'd gone around some bend in that period of time she was about 75 at the time or something like that and or you know your grandchild arrives and you go oh my god this this little being that was just a child is about to be an adult and you begin to have this sense of the incredible impermanence and change and shift that's going on all the time and that brings some deeper insight and that's helpful and staying present and and it's actually kind of interesting when you really give it your attention and allows you to stay a bit more here. When the Buddha taught about the foundations of mindfulness, he said that mindfulness was one of the most valuable strategies that there was for waking up, one of the most valuable tools. It's not the only one, but it's one of the most valuable ones. And mindfulness, one of the fruits of mindfulness, is equanimity. And equanimity is really one of the great fruits of all practice. So equanimity is that place where you really can stay balanced. I often think of it as the ability to surf. And in the last few days, that's been pretty interesting around here. You know, big, big, big waves, right? Well... For some of us, this particular time of year is sort of the equivalent to really big waves. And knowing how to surf, knowing how to stay balanced, or sometimes knowing when to stay out of the waves, probably, um, is very, very useful. And, and that's, that's really what equanimity is, is that ability to, to you, know, you, you shift and you move and you adjust. It's not a static thing um, that allows you to be so present. So Pema Chidron, I was reading um, one of her books this afternoon for a bit, and she has a lovely statement in there uh, in which she says, when we side with our sanity, when we side with our sanity, instead of the small-mindedness of self-absorption, so when we, when we actually choose to try to stay in the sanest place we know, 
This is the place, she says, of great blessing. This is the place where we gather merit. So making you know, a strong intention to work with these foundations of mindfulness is a way of, of sort of understanding that being present, being awake, not being caught in the, the smallness of our stories is, is not only a blessing for ourselves, but actually a blessing for everyone around us. So I encourage you to give it a try, see what happens with these foundations of mindfulness in your practice in these coming weeks. So I think I'll stop there. I might take a couple of questions if there's anything urgent, but I have a hunch that it might be more fun to move through with announcements and and eat a little bit more. But Martin? So if mindfulness is one of those useful things, but there's other things... Things like the the development of loving-kindness practice, for example, and compassion, sympathetic joy. Sometimes practices practices of deep concentration can be helpful. They're not particularly productive of wisdom, but they're still, you know, they can still really help to deepen your whole. So there's, there's lots of different kinds of practices, yeah. Um, so in a retreat setting, it's a pretty logical progression of uh-huh. first the breath and then moving right. on. So what do you recommend in a daily, you know, 45-minute setting? Oh, that's an interesting question. It sort of depends on you. For many, many people, are you know, we're not very concentrated in our everyday lives. The mind is scattered... And so doing practices that focus primarily on the breath or the breath and the body really ground us and stabilize us. And then using the other foundations um, to support that so that if something is strongly unpleasant or pleasant, you know, that you don't get pulled off base by that. Or if a strong state comes up in the mind, you know, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm filled with fear today then you know how to work with that. Um, but a lot, you know, there are days when when you can sit down and be pretty settled and you can have a broader wide-angle lens and then you begin to use them. It's almost kind of holographic, I think, or sometimes all at once. You know, so they're not, they're not, they are taught in a linear way, but I don't see them as being always linear. Yeah? Does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please, in the back. Um, I have a dog that lives near me that <laughs> yaps, wants to yap, and I want to meditate. Ah, probably my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what Well, you can't change the dog, right? So you can begin to notice hearing as one of the things that you're noticing. You probably are going to have some strong mind states coming up around it, and it is probably a sense of it being unpleasant. One of the very interesting things to do with hearing, though, is actually a way of working with the body where you see if you can notice the hearing just at the level of vibration on the eardrum. It's not the dog barking, it's just vibration. 
Now, you have to be pretty still for that to happen, but knowing that that can happen, actually, I have found to be quite useful. And to just go, oh, what happens if this is just hearing? It's just, can I notice just the hearing? And then after a while, you know, it's just hearing. The more you allow yourself to react and to get caught in your story about this dog, probably the harder it's going to be. Yeah? I suppose there might be a time of day when the dog is quieter. You could try meditating then. (laughs) At least once in a while to give yourself a little respite. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to make some announcements. Anne, would you, in the third drawer of the file cabinet, there's a bag that says chant sheets, and I particularly want to do some chanting this evening, and I will say why in a moment. Um, And if you just sort of get them and start sprinkling them around, that would be great. So um, Saturday, Bob Stahl is teaching... Um, a day of mindfulness at Tanpulu Kaba'ai Monastery in Boulder Creek. Tanpulu Kaba'ai is a Burmese monastery, and Bob himself was a monk in Burma at one point and um, studied with um, Tanpulu Sayada, who was the founder of this monastery, and lived there for quite a while, not as a monk but as a layperson. And um, it would be a really good opportunity to, have, to practice in that setting and to get a feel for um, what Burmese practice in a Burmese monastery is like. Since it's Bob teaching, it's not going to be terribly different from Bob teaching when he's here, but um, it'll be a different setting. So I really invite you to think about going for that. And then we have a flyer. Carla has not only brought the chocolate fountain tonight, but saved the day for New Year's Eve. Can, will you bring the chocolate fountain for New Year's Eve? <laughs> That's a way to get people. Anyway, we thought we had no teachers in town for New Year's Eve, but she's going to be leading a New Year's Eve peace meditation beginning at 9.30 and going until 12.15. And the flyers are here. Where are they? Are there? Well, I've got some. I'm not sure where they went. So... Um, stay tuned, it'll be on the website and we'll try to get the flyers out someplace where you can find them before you leave tonight any other announcements? Sue, yes please, the calendar Um, Tibetan Nuns Project calendar, once a year Um, they are wonderful calendars thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate